Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, I'm Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I'm delighted to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. I'm pleased to welcome Drs. Gail Jensen and Dr. Richard Siegel, who are going to talk with me about their recently published perspective entitled Education Research in Physical Therapy, Visions of the Possible. Gail and Rick, welcome. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. I really enjoyed your perspective. I think you raised some really important issues for us to be thinking about in our profession, and so I'm delighted to have the chance to talk with you about some of the themes that you've written about. You talk in your perspective that we currently really lack a robust community of education researchers in our profession. I wonder if you could reflect on what you see as some of the major reasons for this and how our situation may or may not differ from other health professions. Two or three reasons to start out with. One is to think about where the profession is in our development. So many physical therapists who receive doctoral degrees in education end up recruited into educational administration. So they become program directors, directors of clinical education, and have limited time for scholarship and don't really see themselves as education researchers. Another piece is not all education doctoral programs are created equal. So a lot of folks that get doctoral education in education are focused on more the applied side and and don't get a deep theoretical background, nor do they get connected to a community of educational researchers. And a third reason is that we're different from medical education, which is probably the lead Cadillac model. They're the most fully developed. They have the advantage of age in the profession, but they also have the advantage of resources. So they hire PhDs in education to lead their medical education departments. I know that Rick has a couple of other comments here, so I'm going to turn it over to him. One of the things that's become apparent to me over the many years I've been involved with colleges of medicine is that their accrediting body, LCME, has a lot of power over what they do as far as their curriculum. So, for example, there can be major curricular overhauls made just so they can remain accredited. And universities take that input from LCME very seriously. So they garnish many resources. So, for example, I used to be at Emory University many years ago, and when it became clear they needed more educational resources, they built a wonderful new education facility. So not only do they have the the resources for funding research, but also making sure they have the resources that are necessary to carry out that curriculum. Gail, that's my main point there. One other point here, which I think is important, is that the trigger for this paper actually came from, you know, the American Council on Academic Physical Therapy, and we were on a task force because they realized that we have an issue here and we really need to begin to address it more intentionally. Yeah, and in fact, what what happened was I was speaking with Barb Connolly from the Foundation for Physical Therapy about getting more resources for education research. And, of course, I learned a lot about the foundation during that process. But it's clear that some people are interested in agenda, but when we put the task force together, and I was the liaison from ACAP for it, we decided that we wanted to develop really almost a strategy. What were the variety of things that would be necessary to push us 
forward. And then from that, we could ultimately develop an agenda. And in fact, we're going to have a meeting in D.C. to start talking about some of the education research offerings that we might have among APTA, ACAP, and the education section. Well, let me pick up on what both of you have mentioned. You made reference to medicine, the field of medicine, and the fact that they're more mature. And you talked about the, the challenge of funding, which is very real. But as you look at medicine and other more mature health professions and how education research has evolved in those fields, what are some other lessons that we in physical therapy might be able to take from their experience and build on? The first thing I would say is that you really have to see yourself in a dual role. So you're a physical therapist, but you also have this role as an educational researcher, if that's the way you were prepared. And then you have to look within your field, but also outside your field, to see what kind of research, education research, is being done in the health professions. And there's a lot, and there's a lot of good research that's theoretically grounded. So getting connected and seeing what's going on, there's significant work going on in health professions education focused on learning and the importance of learning and what we know about it theoretically and then applying that to our practice area. So getting outside our field and looking at what's being done and what's, our, what's your identity as a researcher is really important. And, you know, I think in physical therapy we did that very well on the clinical research side. We need to do the same thing in the education research side. You make a really good point, Gail, about the problem of people with educational backgrounds seeing themselves as education researchers. You know, I've worked in the university most of my career, and when I look at promotion and tenure guidelines in most of our premier research universities, it's clear that research is a critical element. And I'm wondering how our education prepared physical therapy faculty surviving if they're not engaged in education research? I think that as we're moving forward in academics, I think that some institutions are becoming, I would say, more open to the idea of educational research being a, a valid research approach. And we need to reinforce that with our faculty that they have that experience, but that they actually do have to seek out funds and have to publish and have to have a career trajectory to be successful. In some institutions, that type of research, because the money that comes in, it may not get them tenure, but it should be able to get them promoted. And in the last two institutions that I've been at, University of Chapel, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and here at Medical University of South Carolina, we have had numerous people that have done scholarship of education, but have also tried to fund. And they've been successful being promoted, mostly not in the tenure track. On the other hand, we also have at MUSC and I think some other institutions, we've separated promotion from tenure so that tenure is actually measured as your value to the university, which could be beyond or different than the promotion criteria of uh, grants and publications. And it does allow people that do innovative educational research to potentially get tenured. And we've had a couple people become tenured recently. 
So I think that we as a profession need to come up with good arguments that our faculty who get on promotion and tenure committees at universities to try to shape it a little bit, although I don't expect it to change dramatically at the heavily research-intensive universities. It definitely is a challenge. I've seen it in, in our own university here at Boston University, and it does require a bit of a culture shift for some of our faculty. Yeah, well, I guess it's a question back to both of you. Is It's hard to get a lot of money to do education research, but you can do quality work and publish and, you know, theoretically grounded work that makes a difference without a great deal of money. So do you think the extramural funding amount is a barrier? Alan, you want to take that first? Yeah, I can speak to that. I do think... It is a problem, and as you noted in your perspective, external funding for education research in PT and and more broadly is a problem. When you look at promotion and tenure criteria in a research university like Boston University or, or any other, external funding is really not a specific criterion. It's something that I have actually been quite surprised to see. The funding isn't the critical thing. The ability to contribute to the the body of knowledge in your particular field, to publish, to be recognized both nationally and internationally, those are the key criteria in most research universities. Now, I will acknowledge that promotion and tenure committees tend to look quite heavily at an individual's funding, but it's actually not a major component of the criteria, at least in our university. Rick, you might want to comment. I would say it's a mixed bag. So I would say when I was at Emory and in my conversations with people at some of the other research-intensive institutions like Northwestern, that having a couple of RO1s, which are the major NIH grants, is part of the unwritten criteria. But at other places, like here at MUSC and at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, I don't think it was written as tightly. It may have been looked at more for someone who is in a basic science department. But for people that are in health professions, having funding that helps you to support your scholarship trajectory so that you're able to make those impactful contributions is really the criteria. And and I think that wise promotion and tenure committees really get that. And so I think that we should be showing a more optimistic view of the future. But one of the things we have to do at the same time is mentor these faculty to develop clear career development plans that allow them to develop a clear trajectory of what they're going to be doing so they're not scattered. And and focus is important. Now that you mentioned it, Rick, let's talk about that. Because in in the perspective, you note that there is a lack of doctoral and postdoctoral mentorship in education research. And as I read that, I thought, wow, that's very similar to the situation several decades ago in clinical research and physical therapy. Could the two of you talk about what some of the major lessons we learned from addressing the problem in clinical research are that might be applied to making progress in education research in our field? And I think that's how I got very involved in this paper, is I think that people sometimes try to say we're different in what we're doing, like education research. 
But on an infrastructural basis and a way of progressing our faculty forward, I don't think we're very different than what than the clinical or basic researcher. And that the lessons learned from the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s on, that physical therapy put forward, you know, the, the research retreats that were like Gordon conferences, where people got to mingle and develop the great ideas of the future. And the idea of mentorship became very apparent, because now we have several K-12 awards, which are NIH early faculty awards for mentorship. We've been very successful with those. So the lessons learned is I think we should follow that roadmap to best we can and that we should be building up training grants, training opportunities for mentorship, and that we should be develop, having meetings where we're developing what are the big ideas that we need to be exploring. And I think that's what helped us move forward. In addition, I, you know, I put forth the idea in, in our paper about trying to collaborate with people in these clinical science translation award funded institutions that are, really have an educational component because we're trying to translate research from bedside to the clinic, but it's always forgotten our medical students, our physical therapy students, and so forth. They're not part of that process. That would be an awesome way for us to get some funding uh, and also collaborate with other scientists and get mentorship from other scientists. And then finally, you know, I'm principal investigator for something called the Tiger Grant Writing Workshop, which is for rehabilitation research. Why not have workshops like that for our education researchers? And these can develop very long-lasting mentorship for those people. Those are just my few thoughts. Let me add to that. And... I think that when I look at what's happening right now in medical education, and they're having a very focused effort in looking at the continuum of learner development from undergraduate medical education through residency and fellowship. So they have a conceptual framework or model of these competencies and milestones in trustable practice activities that is really providing the foundation for education research. And they're creating a number of projects and papers collaborating as they do that work. So they do the work, they do the assessment, they develop the tools. It's educational research that is fulfilling a broader need in the development and assessment of the learner. I think it's a great model for us to take a look at it. And I know there have been some conversations, and we're in the beginning phases of that. But it's a great example of how the profession puts out some kind of blueprint and says, here's where we need the work done. I mean, this goes back, I think, to Rick's point about we need to uncover what are the big questions that need to be addressed. But your recent comments raised two additional questions I'd like to explore with you both. Gail, you just mentioned really the strong conceptual and theoretical grounding in education research that's being done elsewhere. Why do you think that hasn't seeped into our profession more to date? And what do you think can be done to really push that forward? I think, again, there are lessons learned in the clinical research side. I think as a profession, we have to come together to say, where do we need to put our focus and our intention collectively and not, well, we can, we can have this innovation over here and this innovation over there. I, you know, I think we need to come together on this, and that means that not everything is going to get funded or focused. 
But I think our personality as a profession has been to allow a lot of flexibility and I can tell you the climate out there in accreditation, in higher education, in federal funding is not is really about standards, performance standards, and how do how do we get there? And I think we're going to have to face that. Good. I want to follow up, Rick, with your comment about the translation of research findings into clinical practice. Uh, I had not thought about it, but uh, in the perspective, you make a very clear point that education has been a missing link for clinical translational research. And of course, translational research is very um, popular right now. How do you think we can get education and educational programs more centrally involved in translational work? So I did actually did a talk here, the 50th anniversary of our college, and that was the focal point. I think that we are actually trying to do it in our physical therapy neurology residency program right now, where we have the residents be people that are going to be the evidence-based translators of research into their neurology clinics. And so it's going to be a slow process, I think, from the perspective of how many people we're going to have impact on. But I'm going to go to our CTSA. MUSC is small enough that we everybody knows each other, and I'm going to go to the PI and talk to them about the concept and see if there's if that would be something that could potentially be eligible for some pilot funding so that we could try to make sure that we had the researchers that were presenting some have some new evidence be speakers in our classrooms that our faculty are facile with that research and then come up with ways to try to measure whether that gets translated into the clinic when the students go on to clinical rotations. And we may have to start small, maybe where we have our residents who already are a step ahead. But I think it's going to take something like that where there's buy-in from the researchers, there's buy-in from the university's CTSA, and then there's buy-in from clinics that we work with or health systems that they are interested in knowledge transfer. And then bring in some consultants because I'm not an expert in that per se. I'm just strongly interested in it. And try to develop some small studies to see if we can implement this. So it is actually one of our strategic plan goals that's been downplayed a little bit so far, but it is the ultimate goal for myself and the person who's going to be the director of the PT program here to try to do this. You know, I think that's a very promising strategy because some small success will lead to larger success in the future. So I, I look forward to hearing more about that. He and I are both very, very excited about this. You know, Rick and Alan, there's, there's another dimension, too. When we think about what physical therapists do in practice, there's a dimension of teaching and learning that's central to the work we do, and we don't often connect that very well. You know, our clinical research has focused very much more on the measurable metric side. I think there's work to be done in how we uncover kind of the personalized medicine or the elements that really do count in terms of intervention and outcome. And we have some of that now, you know, as they bring in yellow flags and you know, those kinds of things. But we haven't connected our worlds very well. 
Speaking of that, one of the other things that did strike me in reading your perspective is that you spoke about how important it is to establish an empirical link between our professional education as well as our post-professional education and patient outcomes. And it reminds me of conversations I have a lot with people in other professions where they have noticed that the field of physical therapy has shifted to the entry-level doctoral PT and they have frequently asked whether or not there is an empirical link between that shift and improvement in patient outcomes. Do either of you care to, to comment on that? Is there some empirical evidence that links the two? That's a tough question, and I just have to make a comment that I remember you asking that same question at CSM meeting in Seattle when, when the clinical doctoral programs were just starting. <laughs> so you've had this question for a long time. And that was stormy weather during that meeting, you all recall. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it was. But there hasn't been. I, you know, I think there's been a little dab here and there, or programs might do some exit surveys, but it is an important question whether you can point directly to that. I don't know. I think we've probably seen more evidence now, small studies of, of looking at, you know, what's the value of residency education? Does it make a difference? But it's a, I, it's a really important question. I think it really is. Years ago, it was the $64,000 question. I don't know what it is now, but when I was at UNC and we had a clinic, we talked about and we, we were working with the Shep Center for Health Services Research to try to come up with a way where we could evaluate the impact our students were having on patients in the clinic. And if we were not effective, how could we feed that back to our curriculum to make change? That is a toughie. But that's the really kind of where we want to go in, in some way. We want, if we're doing, there's so many, you know, intervening factors. But it would be lovely because I know we're going to have to be justifying our existence and, and our justifying why we should be reimbursed. And what a beautiful way to be able to make some of these links. Do we know, have uh, PharmDs done any work in that area, DNP, do any of these clinical doctors, are they looking to see if it makes a difference? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, Gail. I don't know the answer, but it certainly would be worth looking into. Yeah, I'm trying to get one of my faculty members, she's director of nurse anesthetist program in my department, who does a lot of continuing education, evidence based practice. And so I asked her, you know, she needs to build some scholarship. I said, Have you thought about studying whether what you're teaching is being onboarded by these attendees in their clinics? And just that little piece, is there actually an after effect of doing this continuing education, let alone whether it's actually effective, but are they even trying to onboard it? Well, I want to wrap this up and, and say to both of you that I really enjoyed talking about several of the themes in your perspective, and I want to encourage listeners who haven't to do take a look at their perspective in the December issue of physical therapy. I think you'll find it very stimulating and enjoyable. But thank you both. I appreciate your taking the time to join us in this PTJ podcast. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thank you very much.